I don't think anyone's going to respond because this is a vocal recording, but... It's just that underground scene. It's it's unreal. It's something... You're my brother-in-law. No, you could, but there's more. He comes up to you and he's like, name the bass player, you know. <laughs> we have seen at least the shadow of a black hole. Temple, like, that show was insane. <laughs> that was... That was amazing. This is the Brain Bosch Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Brain Mosh Podcast. My name is Dryden. I'm here with my co-host, Bredo. Hey guys, how's it going? And, uh, Bredo, it is the end of the world as we know it. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of excited. <laughs> I'm also kind of excited. I'm super depressed because of everything that I learned for I learned about for this episode. But, uh, yeah, no, there's, it, yeah, it's cool. This will be a cool episode, I think. Um... I, I should clarify at this point, uh, today's episode, which we're both fairly excited about in a fairly masochistic way, is uh, the apocalypse, the end of the world, uh, hu- human extinction, nuclear warfare, climate change, everyone's everyone's favorite subject. Um, yeah, that should be fun. <laughs> um, of course, this is the this is the brain mosh podcast, and so the apocalypse stuff will cover the brain side, and. Uh, in order to cover the mosh side, I felt that I should at least find some heavy metal material uh, to cover. And luckily, there's no shortage of heavy metal songs written about the apocalypse. So I had I had a wide range of stuff to choose from. Um, I narrowed it down to two songs because I, I didn't want to I didn't want to spend too much time because we have a lot to talk about about the end of the world. And uh, yeah, so I narrowed narrowed it down to two songs. And if you are listening and you have not yet listened to these two songs, I would suggest that you pause and go listen to those songs and reevaluate your life choices for not having listened to them in the first place, and then come back and join us, because I think these two songs are going to uh, be fairly good introductions to at least two of the things that I'm planning on talking about. I don't know exactly what Bredo has planned, but uh, the first song that I chose um, is The Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden, because, of course, it... Uh, quite prominently features some very common imagery from uh, the book of revelation uh, which we'll get more into later but of course that's uh, where a lot of the western world's sort of apocalyptic imagery in our movies and in our books and tv shows and stuff kind of comes from and uh, of course heavy metal is uh, no exception so i chose the number of the beast by iron maiden and believe it or not i chose another iron maiden song i didn't want to choose two iron maiden songs but this one was just too perfect, and it was just too perfect to ignore. Uh, the second song that I chose is Two Minutes to Midnight, also by Iron Maiden. Um, reason I chose that is because it's a reference to the Doomsday Clock uh, being two minutes to midnight. And again, we'll get more into the Doomsday Clock later, at least I will. And which, But see, the reason I couldn't resist choosing that song is because, uh, as we will discuss later, the world doomsday clock is currently set to two minutes to midnight. So, uh, wait, we are actually, whoa, is it actually, yeah. I thought we, yeah, I thought it... it got scaled back and we were like five minutes to midnight or something like that. No, no, we'll get more into it later. I have a lot of stuff to say <laughs> about it, but it was set to two minutes to midnight in 2018. Um, and it is still at two minutes to midnight. It was announced, I think in January of 2019, uh, they're keeping it at two minutes. Um, again, we'll get more into it later. But 
Yeah, this is like like when they set it to two minutes in 2018. That was the first time I think since 1953 um, that it was that close to midnight. I think it's never been two minutes since like the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which we'll also talk more about later. But uh, yeah, so the end of the world is maybe closer than we think. Who knows? Um, anyway, so Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden and Two Minutes to Midnight also by Iron Maiden. Those are the two songs that I chose as uh, sort of the theme songs for today's episode. I wish we could actually play them for you guys, but there's copyright laws and stuff that prevent us from doing that. So just go listen to them on your own. Um, yeah. Bretto, do you want to give us a little brief overview of what you were planning on talking about today yeah no absolutely and i uh i have a couple songs if anyone wants to go and listen that kind of relate to my topic on climate change for the most part um by a band called uh fit for an autopsy they have a couple songs uh one is called terraform and another is called when the uh when the bulbs burn out and the whole concept around both those songs is how we're essentially changing the planet and how that's going to affect us and then what can happen afterwards. So, um, yeah, no, they're fun songs, real heavy, not very um, happy for the most part, but uh, they're fun to listen to. That's, uh, that's how I felt about this entire episode as I was preparing for it, is it was, it was a lot of fun to prepare for, but it was not uplifting or happy at all. No, absolutely not. <laughs> in fact, I'm probably in the worst emotional state I've been <laughs> I've been in for any episode that we've done so far. But uh but no, no, it'll be good. I actually learned some pretty interesting stuff and uh yeah, the good news is and and, and I'll say this as a disclaimer for anyone who might be thinking that they don't want to listen to the rest of the episode at this point. Uh the good news is uh at least regarding the topics that I want to cover today, the good news is that if we were going to destroy ourselves by any of the means that I'm going to talk about, I think we already would have destroyed ourselves and I don't actually see I don't actually see the end of the world happening like in the immediate future. You're pretty optimistic ba- there cuz like <laughs> based 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 on what I've learned and based on the like like I don't know what I don't know what kind of stuff you dug up. I don't know if you know something <laughs> that I don't. But based on what I learned and what I read, um the the areas like how do I put this? The ways in which the world might end that I've learned about, I don't actually see those happening in the immediate future. Now when I say immediate future, I'm thinking like five years. Beyond that, I don't know. Beyond that could be just pure Mad Max for all I know. You don't think Kim but... Jong-un is just going to press that big shiny red button and end it all? See, but he would have He would have already. <laughs> he would have already if he was going to. Yeah. That's honestly, and, and you know, like later I plan on talking a lot about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I don't see us getting as close to nuclear war as we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis within the next few years at least. And even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and as I'll talk about later, we came ridiculously close to nuclear warfare. Um, it didn't happen, you know? Stronger heads prevailed overall. And and so for, like, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure if I knew everything that goes on behind the scenes in the CIA and in North Korea and everything, maybe I'd have a different opinion. But 
I, I don't know. I'm optimistic for at least the next five years. After that, we're all on our own. <laughs> but I'm give I'm giving us I'm giving us a five year grace period. Well, you know what? Since uh, it sounds like we both have a lot to talk about, and this is pretty exciting stuff, do you want to just jump right into it? Because I kind of want to know more about the Cuban Missile I... Crisis. <laughs> all right. Well, the Cuban Missile Crisis is uh, sort of far away on my agenda of stuff to talk about, but. Um, yeah, so so the first thing I did uh, in in my preparation, um, it, because I am a bit of a theology and philosophy nerd, um, and because I <laughs> this is a bit of a humble brag, but because I actually took one semester of biblical Greek in in university last year, um, the first thing that I wanted to do was actually talk about what the word apocalypse actually means and where that word comes from. Uh, because it doesn't actually mean what I thought it meant. Like when when I learned the etymology of the word, I was I was surprised. It actually has a much cooler meaning than I thought. Uh, of course, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think, uh, you know, the end of the world, like you know, nuclear war and super volcanoes and famine and disease and extinction and stuff like that. But uh, it's actually pretty cool. So the word apocalypse uh, comes from a Greek word, uh, apocalypto. Okay, and apocalypto is the opposite of another Greek word, calypto. So uh, my knowledge of Greek is very, very rusty. But basically, if you have a word and then you have the, the prefix apo before it, that makes it like the opposite, right? So calypto is an ancient Greek word, which means to hide or to veil. Um, it can also mean to hinder knowledge. Uh, like it can refer to like sort of a censorship, uh, but basically it means to hide something. And so apocalypto is the opposite of calypto. So it means to unveil or to reveal. So uh, that's why like the book of Revelation is called Revelation. Uh, because in the original Greek, uh, ver Greek uh, version of the book, uh, it was referred to as the Apocalypse of John. Uh, John, of course, being the guy who had the vision of the end of the world uh, with, and, you know, and who wrote the book. Um, and so that word apocalypse has been translated into modern English as a revelation. So you can, you can understand that in a number of ways. Um, apocalyptic literature, which, uh, no, let me rephrase that. Uh, so the book of Revelation um, is generally considered to be one of the most famous examples of apocalyptic literature. So apocalyptic literature is basically literature uh, that intends to reveal reveal the future or reveal hidden knowledge or reveal secret knowledge. Um, you know, it all ties into that whole revelation concept. Uh, and actually... In the ancient Greek world, uh, the the moment, and I couldn't actually find a source to verify this. This is something that one of my professors told me. Uh, so if it's wrong, just blame it on him. But in the ancient Greek world, when they would watch a play, the moment that like sort of the curtain opened and the play began, that moment was referred to as the apocalypse because it was like the revealing. It was the beginning Um it was like when the things that were behind the curtain kind of came out into the open. So 
that's where we get this concept of apocalyptic literature, which is all over the ancient world. Like, every major religion has some sort of apocalyptic literature, uh, some sort of, like, sacred text that uh, supposedly reveals the, the, the future of the world, sort of reveals the plans of God, reveals the knowledge of God. Um, and so that is sort of the category that the book of Revelation falls into. And even if you are not at all familiar with the Bible, I'm sure you are familiar with some of the uh, imagery that comes out of the book of Revelation. Uh, like I talked about with uh, with Iron Maiden, uh, the number of the beast, 666, that comes out of the book of Revelation, right? And that is something that I'm sure every metalhead in the world is familiar with. Um, the other famous image that comes out of the book of Revelation is uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So... Uh, the first horseman uh, rides a white horse, and he represents conquest and military strength. Uh, the second horseman rides a red horse, and he represents war. The third horseman rides a black horse. He represents famine. And then the final horseman rides a pale horse. And I actually want to read this verse from the book of Revelation, because I think it's really cool. Uh, the book of Revelation says, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. So, that's the description of the pale horse. He represents Death. Uh, so those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Of course, they show up in a lot of uh, modern apocalyptic imagery, you know, movies and books and stuff. Um, and, you know, the book of Revelation even even if you are like the farthest thing in the world from a Christian, if you hate Christianity, if you're not at all familiar with the Bible, what have you, I think we can all agree that there's some pretty metal things being said <laughs> in the book of Revelation. And that's what I thought of when I read that verse about the pale horse. Water's turning riding. to blood. Water's turning to blood. Uh, the, the, the moon turns red. Uh, the sun is blotted out of the sky. <laughs> it's definitely the mo it's definitely the most heavy metal part of the Bible. My favorite thing um, about that too is just the imagery that that pulls up with like the four horsemen, because even yeah. if you don't take it in a literal sense, the metaphors that it brings about is actually unreal. Because yeah. we can see that in a lot of today, and even what I am going to jump into as well that. It kind of, it leads and escalates. It's that snowball effect. And it all leads mm -hmm. to the same place, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, the reason I thought it was, the reason I thought I should mention the Four Horsemen is because I feel like, uh, like we're, we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about some different ways in which the world could end, uh, some ways that people have thought the world might end. And I feel like no matter how you think the world's going to end, I feel like it can fit into one of those four categories or some combination of them, right? Like military, war, famine, and death. Like there's got to be some element of one of those things in your plan for the end of the world, you know? Um, and I, I, yeah, I think everything that we're going to talk about will fit into one of those categories at least. But um, yeah, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit, just because, like I said, the book of Revelation is where a lot of our Western imagery about the apocalypse comes from. Um, the other cool thing that I learned, and uh, I won't get I won't get super into this because this kind of strays from the topic, but the number 666, uh, as every metalhead will know, is generally taken to be the number of the beast, uh, the number of the devil, essentially. And uh, that number does come from the Bible. 
but there is some scholarly debate as to whether or not that number is correctly translated. Because when you get into uh, Greek numbers and translating them into modern Arabic numbers, uh, things get a little bit funky. And the general consensus is that the number is 666, but there are quite a few scholars who say that that's been mistranslated and that the actual number of the beast is 616. So, dude, who knows? Yeah, so <laughs> who knows? If you see the number 616 popping up somewhere, you might also have reason to be concerned. I don't know. Um, yeah, um, I've been talking for a long time. So, Bretto, why don't you why don't you take over? I sort of laid the stage here. So, dive on in. Tell me how the world's gonna end. Ooh, okay, so. I guess I gotta gotta preference everything a little bit first, especially if I'm going to talk about climate change. Um, so the one thing I'm not going to talk about the super sciencey aspects of it. So I'm not going to talk about like atmospheric chemistry or uh, how we're changing the chemistry of the ocean, really, or anything. Which I may dabble on depending on where conversation goes, but I'm going to keep it very general for the most part because I feel like that's more relatable and more understandable. Um, so one of the things that I think it's kind of hard to, that I don't know if people necessarily realize, but like climate change is just extreme weather for the most part. Um, so for example, um, as more greenhouse gases are pumped into the atmosphere. So I guess I should start more or less. Um, we're going to, as more greenhouse gases are pumped into the atmosphere, um, it's going to create a heating effect. Um, it traps UV rays and heat, and it warms everything up. Um, and so, like, if you pay attention to the news at all, especially in Europe, um, so, like, the UK has been having one of its hottest summers it's ever had. Um, it was, it's been reaching, like, 40 degrees Celsius. Um, and those kind of events are going to become more frequent and more severe. And that is one of the things that can be attributed to anthropogenic climate change, um, which not only in like the UK, but in Canada, in the US, um, Middle East will see drastic um, weather events and they're only gonna become more common in the 21st century. So the one thing that accompanies a lot of this extreme weather and the extreme heat, the warmer, that the air is, the more moisture, the more water vapor it can hold. And so for certain parts of the world, especially Europe and North America, we're likely to see large, uh, large increases and uh, of uh, heavy rain at a relatively frequent, um, a relatively frequent intervals. So especially when we have rainy seasons, it's just going to be more intense. And this can occur over um, broad time and spatial scales. So it could be large areas for long periods of time, or it could just be isolated for really intense short brief time. Um, and it's going to be a little bit more than what we're used to, and that can have damaging effects overall, especially when we start looking at uh, food and various things. Because um, I don't know about you, it's because I know you've been doing more uh, landscaping work, correct, Ryden? I, I have. Well, technically, lawn maintenance, but everyone calls it landscaping, so whatever. Yeah. So, 
One of the things that I'm sure you might have noticed, it might have been a little bit hard for a few weeks during our summer here in uh, beautiful Alberta, that we've been having a ton of rain. So I was I was literally just going to when you were talking about like when you were talking about like changing weather patterns and stuff, I was just going to say, like, even here in Alberta, we've had a wacky summer. Like we've had way more rain than is normal for this time of year. And so and so that's one of the things that's accompanied with climate change is we're having shifting climate zones. Because I don't know if you pay attention to, like, radar or anything that's going on in, like, the Arctic. So, in the Arctic... I, I, I definitely don't. <laughs> I think that's just you. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, it might just be me. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, so, like, the Arctic has been warming up. Um, since it's warming, permafrost has been melting, which is releasing more um, carbon dioxide, some methane and stuff. And a lot of the cold weather that we've been seeing from the Arctic has been kind of being pushed down into like northern Alberta and into the northern um, territories and provinces. And so it's it's part of that effect of the the climate zones shifting. Um, and so even then in some areas, Saskatchewan is real bad for it to see more droughts and forest fires. There are some areas that are kind of to be paying attention to um, for uh, pests and diseases, and that's mainly because climate zones are shifting. Um, so even now to what we will see globally, um, most nations will experience fewer colder days and nights with warmer days and unusually hotter nights on the rise. So it's one of those things that yeah, it may still cool down, but it's not going to get as cold as it will be. Nights are going to get hotter. Our days are going to continue being hotter, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. Um, so one of the biggest things, also jump in if you have any questions or anything too, or if there's anything oh, you want to talk no, about more. No, go, um, go ahead. So with heat, this is where now we start having a lot of problems because that's just the climate aspect of it. But Nothing exists, exists in a vacuum, so even though space is a vacuum, everything still influences um, each other. So especially on Earth, we have these giant biomes that all impact everything. Um, and that goes to even impacting all the way down to um, community ecology. So with climate change and the world heating up, one of the biggest things that is going to threaten um, us will be our food security. So northern, so the northern hemisphere, anything with a middle, any locations that are middle to higher latitudes are going to experience longer growing seasons, which is fantastic for crop productivity. Um, but as uh, with every degree that global temperatures increase, um, global wheat yields are going to fall anywhere between 4 to 6%, which is kind of crazy just because we rely on wheat so much. Um, Dryden, do you know a lot of the crops that are generally grown or some of the most important crops that are grown? Like around the whole world? Around the world, Canada, Europe. Um, I'm going to say wheat is like the most important one. Wheat's one of them. Um, okay. Also, barley, corn, canola, uh, beans. I don't know. I'm just naming things that grow. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Two other big ones are rice and soybeans. Um, ah. So a lot of the food, a lot of the crops that are produced um, end up going towards um, 
it's animal feed. So a lot for a lot of cattle, a lot of pigs, a lot of that type of stuff. So a large portion of the food that is grown doesn't actually go to humans. It goes to animals that we eat, which is kind of crazy. Um, and then, so with extreme weather, a lot of these crops, they aren't very, um, they aren't very hardy necessarily. So with more extreme weather, we can see a reduction in crop yields of maize, soybean, rice, wheat, but uh, a decrease in the yield by about eight, 18 to 43%, which is pretty wild because now that's going to influence what animals we're going to feed to, how we prioritize different markets, where is that going to get shipped off to, and then how are, it, it starts to become a larger issue of how do we feed everyone and everything. So one of the biggest ways we can respond to climate change would be to reduce our demand for land and products through agricultural intensification, diet shifts, and reduction of the waste that we're producing. And I'm going to go ahead and say that pretty much no major corporations in the world are going to allow for those things to happen, at least not without a fight. Oh, absolutely not. Because here's, maybe this is just my anarchist side coming out, I don't know. But one of the things that I always kind of think about when we start talking about climate change is, you know, and and again, maybe I'm just being a bit too much of a conspiracy theorist, but... I, I feel like the I feel like the government and the major corporations of the world, I feel like they want us to think that, you know, if we drive electric vehicles or if we use uh, reusable bags at the grocery store or if we recycle our bottles, like stuff like that, I feel like they want us to think that we're making a meaningful impact on the global climate when in re like, I mean, it, it, yeah, like it's good to do those things. Like it's better than not doing them. But I feel like in reality, nothing is actually going to improve unless the major corporations and the world governments actually like, like severely alter the way that they've been doing things. But obviously they don't want to do that. And so they kind of put the onus back on us and say like, oh, no, just drive an electric car. It's fine. And we're like, no, please like stop pumping so many fossil fuels into the air, you know? Um, anyway, maybe... Again, maybe that's too much of an anarchist no, thing. But. I don't think you're necessarily wrong. I just think it takes a disproportionate amount of a disproportionate amount of people to do that to cause any change. Because like corporations yeah. will listen to people as long as the market is there. If people stop buying certain products, then but yeah. everyone I think is a little complacent, and so yeah. that's where it's tough to see any real change, even though individual actions do matter. Oh, they definitely matter, and we shouldn't like we shouldn't just ignore what individual actions can do. But no, I do, I I do feel like I do feel like nothing is actually going to improve unless the corporations and the governments, like I said, step their crap up. But anyway, um, what I was what I thought would be kind of fun to talk about is uh, a few ways that. Uh, people have thought that the world might end in the past. So, you know, of course, there's always been, like, like since the dawn of time, I'm sure there's been uh, predictions that, you know, the world's going to end, like, next year, or the world's going to end in five years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I personally know an individual who shall remain nameless who has uh, predicted the exact date of the end of the world on a few occasions and, uh, believe believe it or not, has, has failed every time. But, um, no, so I thought it would be fun to talk about a few... Uh, 
significant predictions that people have made about when the end of the world would occur. And the first one that came to, that came to mind for me uh, was Y2K, uh, which is an abbreviation, uh, literally just stands for the year 2000. Uh, because in uh, the late 90s, uh, basically, and I'm not a computer scientist, so it's possible that I don't have a great understanding of this, uh, but people realized that computers around the world were going to have a very difficult problem uh, transitioning to the year 2000. And one of the reasons for that, I think the main reason for that, was that uh, most computers used a two-digit system for dates, uh, so computers only used two digits to represent each year. So, you know, like, a, computer's, a computer kept track of years with you know, 93 or 94 for 1993. Um, and what was going to happen, people realized, was that when we transitioned into the year 2000, uh, those numbers were going to be set back to zero. And so I there was sort of this global panic where people realized uh, some very important computer systems might kind of freak out about that. Um, again, I'm not a computer scientist, but people were worried that, you know, uh, power grids and uh, even like nuclear defense systems and things like that that were all operated basically on computer power would have serious malfunctions and uh, maybe maybe do some weird stuff and maybe even pose a danger to human life. So uh, basically in the year 1999, as far as I know, I was I was not very old at the time, but uh, there was there were a lot of people kind of preparing for what they saw as a possible like mini apocalypse, um, you know, stocking up on food and water and firewood and things like that. And uh, actually just just today, I was at my grandparents house and I was helping them move some firewood. And they were telling me that a lot of that firewood they had had since the year 1999 because they had bought it because people told them that they needed to stock up on firewood for Y2K just in case you know, there was some big blackout or something and they needed to heat their house. Um, so this was, and my grandparents are definitely not the sort of people that would, you know, jump on a conspiracy theory bandwagon. So this was uh, something that, you know, people took kind of seriously and, and I'm sure the media played a role in sort of, uh, you know, freaking people out about it. Um, as far as I know, when the world transitioned into the year 2000, absolutely nothing happened and people collectively kind of just breathed a sigh of relief but and it's easy for us to look back at that now and kind of laugh at it but uh, at the time i can imagine it would have been i don't know fairly scary if everyone was saying that you know computers around the world were just going to crash like you know pretty much everything around the world is pretty integrally controlled by some sort of computer system um anyway yeah so that was y2k that was one way that people predicted the world could end uh, the, the other one that obviously came to mind and, uh, I'm, Bredo, I'm sure you'll remember this just as well as I do, but the whole 2012 thing, uh, the whole Mayan calendar prediction, you remember that? Yeah, I was, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that one I was really excited <laughs> for. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I was, I was, we were in high school, I guess when that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was like, I, I remember, and I was an impressionable and generally anxious young man at that point in my life, so it's no surprise that I kind of freaked out about it, but I remember being genuinely concerned about that one. Um, basically, uh, what that one was all about, and I'm sure most of our listeners will remember this maybe even better than we do, 
but uh, basically what that one was about was that the uh, Mayan calendar uh, marked B- December 2012. And I should note, obviously, the Mayan calendar did not follow, you know, our standard system of, you know, months and weeks and years. But basically, people decided that the Mayan calendar, the date on the Mayan calendar that roughly coincided with December of 2012 uh, marked the conclusion of Oh, geez, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but um, marked the conclusion of a Bakhtun, B apostrophe A-K apostrophe T-U-N. I have no idea how to pronounce that, and I'm sure I just butchered it. But um, that was essentially a time period in the Mesoamerican long count calendar. And uh, it was, I believe that was their longest measurement of time. And uh, it sort of supposedly represented the end of an era uh like the end of a uh, i i don't really know the end of some sort of cycle in the universe and uh someone figured out that it roughly coincided with december of 2012 and uh surely if the mayan calendar ended on december 2012 then the whole world was definitely going to end in december of 2012 i don't know there wasn't a whole lot of logic uh, behind it especially considering the fact that the mayan calendar like doesn't account for like you know leap years or <laughs> anything like that it was the whole thing was very chintzy looking back at it but no i remember being like legitimately freaked out about that that something might actually happen in december of uh, okay bit and question sorry to interrupt go ahead yeah did there was that just like their calendar and was there was their calendar somewhat like ours how like you go to December and then the year resets in January. Like, yeah. is that like, so here, I, I have it written down here actually. Um, what is it here? Oh yeah. So th- this, this particular calendar, um, it kept time in units of 20. So 20 days made, oh, I am going to pronounce all of these horribly. I'm not even going to apologize anymore. Um, so 20 days made a uinal, uh, 18 uinals or 360 days made a ton, uh, 20 tons made a caton and 20 catons, which is roughly 394 years, uh, makes up a bakton. Uh, so yeah, I guess December of 2012 was the end of a bakton and a bunch of people decided that that meant that the world itself was going to end in December of 2012. There wasn't a whole lot of logic behind it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't pretend to be any expert on Mayan, Mayan astronomy, so <laughs> I, I don't really know exactly what the reasoning is for the way their calendar worked. But um, yeah, that w- that's, that's the most recent one that I remember. Like, that's the most recent big end-of-the-world prediction in my lifetime, I think. I'm sure there's been other smaller ones. But, uh, yeah. Um, beyond that, I wanted to talk about some ways that the world actually has come close to ending. Um, and the biggest example that I found, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, obviously nuclear warfare is one of the first things that comes to people's minds nowadays when we talk about ways in which the world could end. So, uh, and a lot of that stems from, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis because the world did actually come shockingly close to ending. And, you know, like I have a degree in history. I took a whole class on the Cold War 
Um, I thought I knew a lot about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I actually learned a lot about it uh, just in preparation for this episode. And I honestly had no idea how close the world came to ending, but it came shockingly close. Um, Basically, I'll try to give a Reader's Digest version of what is otherwise an incredibly complicated political issue. But basically, it so it was it was the thick of the Cold War. Um, JFK was president in the states, and Nikita Khrushchev was the president of the Soviet Union. Um, and basically, I'm sure we all understand, you know, the Cold War. Basically, the Soviet Union had nuclear missiles. Uh, the USA had nuclear missiles. The USA represented capitalism and democracy. The Soviet Union represented communism. Uh, and, you know, countries around the world were having communist revolutions and converting to communism. And the USA was doing everything it could to prevent the rise of communism. And, you know, it's called the Cold War because the USA and the USSR never directly went to conflict with each other. But they did indirectly fight each other through proxy wars, you know, like in in like the Korean War, you have uh, the Soviets and uh, communist China uh, fighting on one side, and then you have uh, the Americans fighting on the other side, uh, sort of in this, you know, like I said, a proxy war, like not a direct conflict between the two countries, but sort of using other countries as pawns to fight each other. Um, yeah, so basically the Cuban Missile Crisis is, a, a lot of historians would say, sort of the climax of the Cold War, um, when, when, the world, when the Cold War came the closest to actually becoming a, a, a hot war, I guess, I don't know. Um, but what had happened was the USA had a, a ton of nuclear missiles stationed in Italy and in Turkey. And those missiles were supposedly there for defensive purposes. Um, the The term that comes up all the time in when you talk about the Cold War is mutually assured destruction, right? And what that term refers to basically is this idea of, you know, you better not shoot any missiles at our country, because if you do, we're going to shoot all these missiles at your country. So, like, if if we go down, we're taking you with us, right? That was kind of the mentality throughout the Cold War. So the USA has these missiles in Italy and in Turkey, so quite close to the Soviet Union, and they're supposedly there just for defensive purposes. You know, they're there because if the Soviet Union does launch missiles at the USA, then the USA has those missiles close and ready to go to the Soviet Union. Of course, this makes the Soviet Union a little bit uncomfortable to have these American nuclear missiles right at their doorstep. Uh, And so they kind of strike a deal with Cuba, because, of course, Cuba was under communist rule at the time. And uh, they sort of strike a deal with Cuba where they are going to put a bunch of Soviet missiles in Cuba, uh, obviously right at the doorstep of the USA. So JFK catches wind that uh, these missiles are on their way to Cuba. And in typical American fashion, you know, it's no big deal for us to have missiles right next to you. But as soon as you want to have missiles right next to us, well, then that's a problem and we need to deal with it, right? So uh, JFK catches wind that these missiles are on their way to Cuba. And he decides to set up essentially a naval blockade around Cuba. So any trade going in and out of Cuba is basically being watched by the United States Navy 
and is potentially going to be stopped by the United States Navy. So Cuba and the, U and the USSR obviously both interpret this as an act of aggression, um, and things get heated, and there's lots, I mean, we could do several episodes just on this alone, but essentially uh, it came down to... Uh, yeah, this is, man, like this honestly gives me goosebumps when I when I read about it. But it essentially came down to one particular incident. Um, obviously, the USA and the USSR were kind of, uh, you know, it was like sort of an eye for an eye, uh, sort of petty little tactics that they were using against each other at this time. So there was there was an American spy plane that was shot down uh, by by a Soviet gun uh, over Cuba. Um, and there was a Soviet nuclear submarine that was hit by a depth charge from an American ship. Uh, now that submarine was armed with nuclear missiles and they were, uh, too deep as far, like, as far as I know, they were too deep beneath the surface to actually communicate effectively with the outside world. So the American side of the story is that they dropped this depth charge to hit the submarine, not to actually damage the submarine, but just to signal to the submarine that it needed to come up to the surface. But when that charge hit the submarine, the men aboard the submarine thought that a nuclear war had begun. They thought that they were actually being attacked. And so there were three officers aboard this submarine and the way that the way that their uh, nuclear missiles were set up was basically that all three officers had to give consent before a nuclear missile could be fired. And so when they're hit with this depth charge, they think that a war has actually started, which it hadn't yet. And so they decide that they're going to launch this missile. So two officers give consent to launch a nuclear missile but a third officer refused to launch the missile. That officer's name was Vasily Arkhipov. And honestly, Vasily Arkhipov is single-handedly responsible for the existence of human civilization as we know it. Um, I, that might be extreme to say, but if he would have caved to pressure and if he would have given consent to launch that missile, then that nuclear missile would have been fired and, and chances are chances are very good that a full-scale nuclear war would have occurred. Um, yeah, that was the first time in history that the USA ever went to DEFCON 2. Uh, DEFCON 2 is obviously only one step away from DEFCON 1, and DEFCON 1 is essentially uh, the state of being in nuclear warfare. So DEFCON 2 is basically like, we are ready for a nuclear war to begin at any moment. Um the Cuban Missile Crisis ended up de-escalating. Uh, missiles, the missiles were removed from Cuba. The American missiles were removed from Turkey and Italy. Uh, it was sort of worked out behind the scenes by with some secret diplomatic meetings. Um, and as far as I know, I mean, maybe there's been some weird incidences that we don't that the general public doesn't know about. But as far as I know, that is as close as the world has ever come to nuclear war. And so possibly that's as close as the world has ever come to destroying itself. It all came down to one Russian officer, Vasily Arkhipov. So honestly, if you're alive today and you enjoy being alive, you owe a huge thank you to Vasily Arkhipov because he made it possible. 
So on behalf of Brain Mosh Podcast, I'd like to send a shout out to Vasily Arkhipov. Um, that's the Cuban Missile Crisis. Again, you could do several episodes on it, but that, yeah, that's the gist of it. My dude, what a hero. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I know, I know it's sort of blasphemous to say that a Soviet officer saved the day, but I mean, he did. Like, there's, there's no way around it. Hey, there's no need to bring nationalistic tendencies into this. Communism no, isn't that bad. No, Come on. Hey, I just <laughs> confessed that I, I just confessed to being an anarchist earlier. I'm 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 cool. I'm okay. <laughs> also, I'm joking about the communist thing. <laughs> um D- dude, why? There's a lot of cool Marxists no, out there. No, no, absolutely. It's more I think like large scale like when you put it into practice, it's a lot more difficult to maintain. I think there's good things about it, but I think just yeah. when you're dealing with people, that's when it all goes to crap. So like, I mean, it's the same as literally any other political ideology. No, absolutely. You know, it's great, and it's it's great in theory, but people mess it up. Yeah. Speaking of uh, people messing things up, that's <laughs> back, back to back to climate change. <laughs> that's what we're doing with our world. So like, climate change isn't the thing that's going to kill us. Um, it's going to be more like food security and resources, and the lack of it, and so. That's where the extreme weather that I kind of mentioned before, um, that's going to have an impact on crop production, where a majority of crops are used for um, for feeding livestock and not just people. And so various crops aren't very hardy, and so they can damage. They can easily be damaged, and um, a crop yield can easily be reduced. So with every degree of global temperature increase we're like to see like uh wheat yields fall four to six percent um 18 to 43 percent of extreme weather will likely decrease crop yields in a lot of um crops that are used to feed livestock like um cattle and uh pigs which include maize soybeans rice and other things like that um one of the things with it too is extreme weather makes it a lot more difficult to then ship and transfer food without it spoiling. And that's the other thing. So this can lead to a lot of people, especially in areas that are um, not as well off. So especially in third world countries, you would see more people in poverty with um, malnutrition because they're lacking in a lot of micronutrients, whether that's like iron or vitamin A. And different stuff like that. Um, even for like in those areas, there's a lot of manual labor. It's not done by machinery so much. So when it's real hot out, it's definitely hard to work. I don't know about you, Dryden, but like working in 30 degree weather is not fun at all. Honestly, okay, this is totally off topic and might be a controversial opinion, but I would rather work in 30 than in the rain. Like really, n- not not saying that I prefer because, like generally speaking, I much prefer the rain. Like I actually really love the rain. That's why I love living in the Vancouver area. I love the rain, and I don't generally like the sunshine. But if I have to be outside working, which isn't something I particularly enjoy or want to spend a lot of time doing, I would rather do it when it's super sunny. I I I don't know. It, it's just it's more enjoyable. I don't know. You know what? Each to their own. You know. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, back back to climate change. Yeah, uh, back to climate change and food security. Um, and so <laughs> and so one of the the biggest things that also threatens um, our food security would be the lack of water availability and even water quality, um, which will impact soil quality as well. If you have garbage soil, you aren't going to grow anything. And so then that puts a lot. And with 7.6 billion people currently, people need to be fed. Um, we can even see... <laughs> no, nah, let them food. starve. <laughs> yeah, food is overrated. They'll yeah. be fine. No, breatharians, you know? What What? What did... Uh, you, you've seen the latest Mad Max movie with Tom Hardy? Honestly, I haven't. Oh my gosh, Bretto. <laughs> okay, well, there, there's a scene in that movie, obviously... They're living in this post-apocalyptic desert wasteland, and so wa- clean drinking water is quite scarce. But there's this one warlord named Morden Joe, and he has a huge reservoir of clean drinking water. And like, so he has all these followers that basically just do his bidding because they need his water to survive. And he tells them in the beginning of the movie, he says, do not become addicted to water or else you... Forget his wording. But basically he tells them, do not become addicted to water. And, uh, you know, I think maybe he has a point. Maybe we're addicted to water in this world. You know what? If uh, I'm <laughs> water is my favorite drug, you know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just a gateway. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Pretty soon you'll be drinking tea, tea. And then you're going to want to start having like some crumpets or something with your tea. I don't know. Some biscuits. Oh, living that I good life. Go some, I could go for some tea right now. Will, Bredo, will climate change affect the growth of tea leaves? Honestly, probably. I can't see why not. Because <sighs> I know I, I saw some articles of more plant species are uh, at risk of uh, going extinct. So probably. So like, you're losing out on tea. <laughs> Honestly, like, at the, at the when we get to the point where we can't grow tea leaves anymore, I say bring on the nuclear war. Like, there's no reason to keep going at that point. No, and I kind of feel the same way. Because, like, green tea every now and then? Mm. Yeah. Oh, man. We, oh, we should do an episode on tea. <laughs> we, oh, man, I could talk for... Oh, man, I could talk for hours about tea. Anyway. <laughs> anyway well, maybe. Maybe one day. Well, there you go. Future spoiler. Yeah. We might do an episode on tea. Um... I, so one of the biggest things, too, is um, I don't know how much you know even about, like, do you have any plants at home, Dryden? Any plants? Yeah. Do you take care uh, of plants? I had a, v- I had a Venus. No, I don't take care of them. That's why I don't have them, because I don't take care <laughs> of them and they die. Um, I had a Venus flytrap. That was the last plant that I had, but it died. But I also bought it on Amazon, so I feel like maybe it's not totally my fault that it died. Yeah, I, I've heard some horror <laughs> stories of, like, people buying animals online and getting shipped to them. Uh, yeah. Okay, little tangent here. One of my co-workers was telling me a story about some kid uh, that he knew bought a turtle online. And it got shipped to him, yeah, but there were no air holes. That's a bad idea. So he got it. He received a dead the turtle, turtle just... in the mail. <laughs> I hope he got his money back. I don't think he did. And I... <laughs> From what my coworkers said, <laughs> you like that Mo- that Monty Python sketch with the dead parrot. <laughs> you know where, he, where he's trying to return his dead parrot to the pet store. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, well, what I was going to say are, um, like everything in the world, um, a lot of plants still reproduce sexually, 
So that's done through pollination. Um, so there are a lot of insects, reptiles, some bats are used, are, are huge pollinators. Um, but by the year 2100, 35% of the global crop production um, that is pollinator dependent uh, can be decreased almost by half. Um, and this will, uh, those that uh, the pollinator population that will be decreased by half will be primarily insects, um, in which this will be mainly because they are going into different areas and or possible extinction. Um, but this estimate, uh, at least this uh, percentage and estimate is under the pretense of the world warming by 3.2 degrees Celsius, which is kind of wild. Um, the main purpose of food security and why it's important that I wanted to get to um, with our with the changing agricultural landscape and how we're doing things, it's not always efficient. And with climate related events, we can see a huge impact on um, disease, especially with humans. So there are more opportunities for um, diseases like salmonella outbreaks to become more increasingly common. Um, any diarrheal diseases. So I don't know if you've. Um, if I currently have a diarrheal disease. Well, I, don't think so. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to say something along the lines of food poisoning. Um, but I've never had food poisoning and count yourself lucky. And I've honestly, yeah. I've never had it either. So I'll take that as a blessing. Um, yeah. but just seeing foodborne pathogens, um, that can, uh, will likely increase and be more readily, uh, available and be spreading mul through multiple mechanisms. And so that's just, it's a huge thing, and so when we can't grow crops, we're going to be end up. There's a chance, and this is where we can go back to like the horsemen of the apocalypse, with uh, conquest and war. We will want to start conquering potentially. This is me being pessimistic, and likely may not happen. But we will want to start conquering each other. We'll go to war for resources, and well, that's that's literally what happened. That's like the premise of Mad Max. Yeah. That's, like, the premise of the world in Mad Max is that, like, they've run out of resources. So, like, there's all these warlords that control different resources. Like, there's the guy that has all the water, and then there's the guy that has all the gasoline, and then there's the guy who has all the bullets, and, uh, yeah. And that's what it could come to. And so, like, extreme weather won't necessarily do us in. It's going to be the management of resources, which I think we're kind of terrible at, and with management of resources it's always it's also going to be uh like i said we're all interconnected we don't exist in a vacuum so with species dying off um it, there's a fun little fact with extinction so on usually when it comes to extinction with birds and mammals we can expect maybe one or two species going extinct roughly every 400 years um, currently, on average, with all taxa, so whether that's plants, insects, mammals, birds, we're losing approximately like a thousand species every year, which oh my word, it, it's mental. And especially when you're looking at animals that are endangered, um, whether that's uh, lions, rhinos, tuna, um, whales. Whales are huge because they're like the farmers of the ocean. Um, they have a lot of phosphorus in their poop. That's a that's adorable. Yeah, I actually love I actually love whales so much more now <laughs> that I know that they're the farmers of the ocean. I know, right? And it's it's one of those things where it's it's top notch because they they 
eat a lot of krill and smaller organisms. Um, and when they when they defecate in the wa- water, there is phosphorus. Phosphorus can cause algae blooms and other um, chlorophyll um, microorganisms. So they produce a lot of oxygen. And then smaller animals will feed on um, those guys. And then it just goes up the food chain. So without whales, we kind of we're missing something. And so we may not have other fish, which we depend on. Even like tuna, a lot of people love tuna. Eventually with overfishing, we may run out of tuna. Um, and it, it's kind of bleak and it's kind of sad, but unfortunately- But on the bright side, no more tuna casserole. Whoa, 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 whoa. You don't like tuna casserole? I hate tuna casserole. It's honestly, oh, like I'm <laughs> gagging just thinking about it. I despise tuna casserole. You know what? That's okay. Each to their own. Um, <laughs> you you said you're not a Marxist earlier, so I mean, I guess we both have our flaws. <laughs> yeah, well, being in Alberta, I'd get stoned for that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so... You may be wondering to yourself, Bretto, what can I do then to help limit my impact with climate change? And nothing, to make sure... nothing. This whole this whole thing's pooched. You can't do anything. Just ride it out. Try to enjoy it as much as you can. Exactly. Maybe start a cult, ritual suicide. I don't... Like I said, each their own. <laughs> each, each their own, yeah. Um, one of the biggest things that a person can do, I know it's um, taking on something that's called uh, a flexitarian diet which is kind of fun. Uh, mainly, this diet will consist of like fruits, veggies, plant-based proteins, some animal proteins as well, uh, with limited amounts of like red meat, refined sugar, saturated fats, starchy foods. Um, and diet is huge in wanting to combat climate change, although uh, a diet like this alone may not completely offset emissions for the, uh, with the environment. Um, so... Environmental considerations need to be taken into account, which is kind of crazy because most people think, oh, I'm, I'm vegetarian or I'm vegan. I'm helping the environment. It's not necessarily true. Um, one of the best things a person can do, actually, is, is to like go to your farmer's market and purchase regional and seasonal food because it's really the best thing that you can do. Um, this is where I kind of want to get political as well. So... Do you follow any um, Alberta politics and even just politics in oh in Canada? Oh oh yeah. So dude, I I start I started my university career as a political science major. So I'm I'm all about that. One of my one of the biggest things that I kind of get a kick out of, um, Jason Kenny is like the the oh, Canadian gosh. Food Guide. It's um it's not health based. It's ideology based. Dairy and cattle is everything. Blah blah blah. wow i wonder why he's saying that he just wants votes (laughs) he just wants votes when in reality we you're better off cutting down on meat and dairy and so like the dairy industry is gonna well well hit me for saying this but you really don't need a ton of meat dairy eggs um, you you don't you you don't need any dairy like at all no. like like humans were not meant to be consuming cow milk no like the like like I can I can only imagine that the day that man began to consume cow milk God was horribly confused and very disappointed and then the only reason why we still consume pretty much any kind of milk it's mainly because most people now have a mutation that 
produces uh, lactase, and so you can still break down lactose. Because that's because like I've read about that about like people who are lactose intolerant are actually just like the normal ones, right? Yeah, like it's 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 those of us who can who can consume lactose that are the weird ones. Because like you, a person isn't supposed to actually be consuming dairy. Where like the only time you're supposed to consume like milk is from your mother's breast, which has a lot of fats, um, a lot of um, protein, a lot of. Um, you get part of the immune system from the mother that way as well. And there's genes that code for lactase to break down lactose. And once you get to a certain age, that gene is supposed to shut off. And so you don't do it anymore. Um, and yeah, it's crazy. But we do it enough that... And that's why, like, like in cultures where they consume... Where they don't really consume dairy, like, everyone is lactose intolerant, yeah. right? Because, like, they've never... Like, like that gene has shut off, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Um one of the one of the best things that you can do, speaking of like Canadian food guide, is cut down on the meat and dairy you eat. Have it maybe once or twice a week. Try to even cut down uh, your total intake by half. So one of the benefits of this, I don't know if you know, but um, you can reduce your risk of colorectal cancer, coronary heart disease, and type two diabetes by twenty to forty five percent just by cutting down on the amount of. Uh, meat eggs and dairy that you consume so just by going vegan basically yeah well flexitarian a little bit every now and then because you get some good vitamins and stuff i like the word flexitarian <laughs> i know right it's, it sounds like you're just not committing to anything you're like yeah flexitarian a little bit, a little of, this. bit of this a little bit of that exactly yeah. one of the more one of the more fun things that i think a person can do if you're pretty adventurous i've tried it once but you can go to an insect-based diet. Um, so like crickets. Oh yeah. Crickets are Yeah, I've I am I am I'm a proud member of the cricket eating club. I, I am too. I'm, here how was how was your experience eating crickets? Okay, so I never actually had whole crickets because I'm still a little bit of a bitch. <laughs> I've had uh, cricket powder. <laughs> cricket powder was fantastic. It didn't really taste like anything. Um, and while I'm talking about it too. Uh, insects are fantastic mainly because they take up less land they produce less waste uh you need less um uh resources to grow and to maintain them insects are rich in protein fat uh and they're a significant source of vitamins and minerals which we need to live so ideally okay, well now now i'm just disappointed in you that you've admitted that you've never actually eaten a cricket because i actually have eaten crickets and uh like I, it was this it was this event uh at my school um it was oh man i forget what it was it was some sort of event where we were just like learning i think we were just learning about like more sustainable diets and stuff and this presenter brought uh like a whole bowl of like of like professionally prepared crickets for us to try and i remember eating one and initially it was like it didn't really taste like anything it it tasted it was almost like eating the tail of a shrimp, you know, like it was just kind of thin and crunchy and didn't really taste like anything. But then I remember the aftertaste was absolutely awful, like just absolutely terrible. Yeah, it's not the best. That's that's, that's all I remember about eating crickets. And then that's where you need anyway. a piece of gum after. But like, yeah, and oh, even yeah. to flavor them, there's actually that's the one thing I love about like BC with being super hipster and stuff. The fact that like 
there's people making like cricket protein bars and like cricket snacks and it's, it's becoming a bit of a thing i don't know how much it'll catch on because people have to jump the hurdle of like oh i'm eating bugs <laughs> but you know what i love like i love in the bible how it talks about john the baptist eating locusts and honey as his main diet you know i like i like, I think that's hilarious. Like, there's no bigger power move in my mind than to be talking to someone and then just to pull out a locust, dip it in honey, and then eat it. Honestly, like... <laughs> and how metal is that, too, you know? Like... <laughs> right? Like, like I was talking earlier about, like, metal things in the Bible. Like, that's one of them. Like, this wild man in the wilderness just eating bugs. Yeah. You know? No, definitely. Anyway. Um, the other thing if people wanted to kind of watch how they're impacting the environment and how they can potentially even help uh, with climate change. If you're buying a new car, if you can afford a new car, that is, you can always look at a hybrid or an electric vehicle, which is fantastic. Or you can support companies like uh, for ocean where they're trying to, they're pulling plastic from the ocean because there's plastic everywhere. I just saw an article um, today, actually, they're finding uh, microplastics in the Arctic and just plastic in general in the Arctic. So it's pretty wild. Wow. Um, the other thing... So, sorry. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, so like, is that... Like, like that, uh, I don't really know anything about microplastics, but that sort of, to me, symbolizes like that like human waste has reached like the furthest extent of the earth and and that's the big thing because it really has because now a yeah. lot of organisms are going to be consuming those plastics and so whenever if you eat fish at all you're going to be eating plastic to some degree there was great <laughs> I, i've read something in an article and yet another reason to not eat tuna casserole <laughs> save the fish and don't eat plastic yeah yeah because like there's something that a person will eat oh, i i don't want to toss it a number but it's like ex it's a it's a stupid amount of plastic every year just because it accumulates Gross. um Ugh. but one of the cooler things that i've seen which i actually think i might do myself is uh have you ever heard of the company tentry oh yeah yeah so yeah. like Every time you buy their merchandise, they plant trees, but they also sell uh, stainless steel uh, utensils. So it comes with a knife, a fork, spoon, chopsticks, and then a straw that has um, like a, uh, some kind of uh, cap on it, so it doesn't so like you aren't putting your lips on metal. And then also something to clean okay. the straw, and it's relatively inexpensive, and it's excuse me, pretty sick. Um. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things that if we don't kind of change our habits, we're going to kill ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, you're trying to be as optimistic as possible, and I appreciate that. I was also being optimistic at the start of the episode. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, like, I, the only, like, solace that I have in this whole thing is that I, I know that our generation is be is is coming up being much more environmentally conscious, like infinitely more environmentally conscious than our predecessors. And I I hope and pray that the things that we do and the people that we vote into office 
um, are able to reduce the damage as much as possible. But I mean, I know how apathetic, I shouldn't say apathetic, but like, I know how lazy I tend to be yeah. uh, when it comes to, you know, doing things that are environmentally friendly. And I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I know, I know how apathetic I can be. And that gives me absolutely no hope for everyone else. See, my I kind of come back to where, like, I care. I don't... My biggest thing is I don't want to see species go extinct. Screw humans. Yeah. We suck. That's, that's the thing. Like, I honestly am so much more worried about tea leaves going extinct than about humans yeah. going extinct. Because tea leaves have brought me more joy at this point in my <laughs> life than humans have. And, like, humans suck. The thing is, life goes yeah. on eventually like the earth if we're gone for long enough given a few like probably there was an article i think it was somewhere along the lines of like ten thousand years the world will kind of will kind of just like rebalance itself out and like there's always going to be um bacteria and microorganisms and stuff and so like life will go on but like it sucks that we have so much life that we can impact ourselves that we may lose but yeah. life goes on gaia will be fine we just won't be Gaio, here to appreciate it. Gaia will be fine, and he'll be even better off without us. Exactly. Um, speaking of us going extinct, um, the last thing that I kind of wanted to talk about is, uh, and, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, uh, this thing called the Doomsday Clock. Um, so, like I mentioned earlier, the song by Iron Maiden, Two Minutes to Midnight. Um, what that song references is this thing called the Doomsday Clock, uh, which is sort of it well it was started by a group called the bulletin of atomic scientists uh, which is a i don't know if they're global or if they're based in the states or what exactly how exactly they work but they are a group of scientists uh environmental scientists sociologists um atomic scientists nuclear scientists uh who basically meet and uh try to figure out how close the world is to ending and how close humans are to killing ourselves off and of course they take uh geopolitical factors into consideration they take uh environmental factors into consideration and they basically just try to decide how close we are to killing ourselves off and every year they set the clock and the number of minutes that we have till midnight basically represents how far away we are from killing ourselves. So, like, we have been, like, like there's been a lot of points where we've been, like, 15 minutes away from midnight. And, like, that's pretty good. Like, that's when we're, like, like, there's not really any imminent danger. Like, we're doing okay. Everything's pretty peaceful. Humanity at its um, best. That's humanity at its best when we're about 15 minutes away from midnight. Uh, right now, as I said earlier, since the beginning of 2018, we have been two minutes to midnight. And when they set it at two minutes to midnight in 2018, that is the first time, like, basically since the Cuban Missile Crisis, that we have been at two minutes to midnight. We are incredibly close to the end of the world as far as this measurement is concerned. And I was on the website, like, this is from the website of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. These are the scientists that set this standard. Um, and I read this, this is, like, kind of the official statement about why we are at two minutes to midnight. And it gave me goosebumps when I read it. And I thought that this would be 
uh, a good sort of last point for me to make. Um, but this, so this is straight from their website. This is like sort of their official statement. This is what they say. They say, humanity now faces two simultaneous existential threats, either of which would be cause for extreme concern and immediate attention. These major threats, nuclear weapons and climate change, were exacerbated this past year by the increased use of information warfare to undermine democracy around the world, amplifying risk from these and other threats, and putting the future of civilization in extraordinary danger. There is nothing normal about the complex and frightening reality just described. So... <laughs> Honestly, there that you sums go. it up. Like that's that's the state of the world today. Really, I don't know. That's the, yeah. That's yeah, a great statement to last, end it on. Um, that last line absolutely unsettled me. There is nothing normal about the complex and frightening reality just described. Yeah. Like our generation, unfortunately, because we grew up uh, being exposed to so much more media and being so overstimulated. Uh, unfortunately, I feel like we're a little bit um, desensitized to some of these things. Like we hear, you know, we hear, oh, we're really close to nuclear war with North Korea. Well, that's nothing new. Like we still kind of go on with our day, right? Yeah. Um, but like this, it, it, this sort of just gives me goosebumps because like these are people who have been studying this stuff for like since the 40s, basically. And they're saying like, no, there's nothing normal about where we are right now. Like we are very much so in the danger zone um because of climate change and because of the threat of nuclear warfare and i think the biggest thing too it's hard to be educated on everything it's hard to even take the time to have the interest and to even understand it um because like i know i so a lot of the information that i pulled from and if anyone wants to go read themselves i pulled a lot of this from um the ipcc's uh report on climate change and land um, which you can find online and download for yourself to read. And it's long where like each chapter is 200 pages. Um, but there's a ton of information how to, um, what can happen, what are ways we can approach these problems, whether it's through policy, personal changes, and various things like that. But it's, you have to be educated on it. And I think that's one of the hardest things. Even if you wanted as a, if you wanted to know what you can do personally to help um, reduce your impact and to kind of do your part in combating climate change, there's a fantastic website called, um, it's uh, www.drawdown.org. And there's a lot of um, examples of things you can do, um, whether that's like buying hemp clothing, some of the things we talked about earlier. There's a lot of policy stuff on there, but it's, being educated because we hear about it all the time but we don't take the time to read up on it to educate ourselves to make the world a better place yeah and uh you know like you you've talked about all the actual like you know, like the scientific things that people can do um and so i just want to i'm also just going to get super political for a minute uh if i i think you know uh canada and the USA are both uh, facing federal elections uh, in the near future. Um, and I, one of the things that 
uh, everyone can do to have a positive impact on uh, the future of our world is uh, vote responsibly. And when I say responsibly, I mean don't vote for Trump. Um, <laughs> and, you know, vote for a party that actually gives a crap about climate change. Vote for a party that gives a crap about creating a more peaceful and more stable world. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill said, uh, he said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And uh, I, I, I can't help but agree with him. You know, we it's easy to get disillusioned with our democracy, especially when it gives us people like Donald Trump as, as world leaders. But um, we can still use it to our advantage if we get out there and we vote and we support and uh, if we spread the word about the candidates and about the parties who, like I said, actually give a crap about this stuff um, and who actually, you know, want to make these positive changes and want to create a better world for our children and our grandchildren. Um, yeah, I, I, this is probably the most depressing episode <laughs> that we've ever done. So I apologize to everyone about that. But I mean, like we both said, there are things we can do. Um, you know, it's not over till it's over. We're all still alive and breathing and the world hasn't ended yet. Um, there are things we can do. There is hope. And, uh, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And you can make a difference. You can. No, no action is too small. Um, that's right. But I think that's kind of a good place to end it. That is, that is a good place to wrap up. So thank you everyone for listening. We're, we're sorry if this episode was hard on your emotional health, but we promise there is hope. Uh, thank you for listening. We hope you have a great night and, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time.